Pastor Tracy and I joined 2,000 of our closest friends last night to run the Gibson Guitar 5K, part of the Summer Fun Run series in uh, Memphis. And that course takes you through kind of the downtown core, the big buildings, Bill Street and all that stuff. But the toughest part of the course uh, was not that the bluff from Riverside to Front Street up Bill is in the last mile of that little course. The toughest part is that I ran it carrying all six of my kids backwards. Some aspects of that story may not be true. That would be foolish, right? I didn't do that. I barely survived doing it without the kids on my back. But I did notice that nobody there had any extra baggage. You've seen the the real runner types, and Tracy and I are not among them. But uh, nobody's carrying extra weight. Everybody's there on purpose. Everybody's there for the same reason. And everybody has streamlined everything about that event so that they can all reach the exact same goal. There are a lot of Christians today who are trying to run this race with Christ, carrying all kind of nonsense, and worse than that, sin, and oftentimes find themselves moving what appears to be backwards. Today's text speaks to that, and I invite you to join me in it in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, hear the word of the living God. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Join me as we ask God's blessing on our consideration of this passage. Father, our plea is simple and yet profound that you would cause us to be as fascinated with the Lord Jesus Christ as you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you want to know what a Christian is? Today's text is one of those times when God gives his most clear description of the Christian life. We could say that that would not be an overstatement if you were to look anywhere else in the Bible. What is a Christian? These two verses would be an apex kind of text to tell us what God thinks a Christian is. The paragraph that we've been aiming at for six years is now in front of us. Starting in October of 2009, this congregation, patient though you are, began a journey in the book of Hebrews. The entire series has been titled, Looking Unto Jesus, which comes from this paragraph, namely verse 2. It's the key paragraph of the entire book of Hebrews. It is, if you will, the thesis statement. As we begin today, I want to try to press the importance, stress the importance of the words that God put in this paragraph by asking a simple question. How would your life be different if this paragraph were not in the Bible? Or positively, how is your life adjusted because this paragraph is in the Bible? Does it matter at all that God has said these particular words? If so, how does that matter? Functionally, practically, tangibly. 
The original audience that received this letter was tempted sorely to trade on true Christianity for what we might call a Jesus plus, or depending on how you look at it, a Jesus minus version of religiosity. They were tempted to adjust true Christianity, the message of the gospel in particular, the work of Christ on the cross in redeeming sinners. They were tempted to adjust not only the message but the implications for the Christian life because persecution was a very real deal in their day. It would have been easier, they would have been tempted to believe, just to take Jesus out of the centrality of everything. Have Jesus, just not Jesus right square in the center of it all. Or you could look at it not only in a centrality, but a supremacy angle. They were tempted to say, yes, he's Lord, but the implications of his supremacy, his lordship, always, without exception, is going to be very difficult in a world like ours. The author calls them to persevere in the true faith by showing them again and again, the unmatched superiority of the person and gospel work of the Lord Jesus. There simply is no alternative to the true Christian life. See, while the world is tempted to think that there are two or three or ten saviors, the Bible teaches clearly there is one. The church, on the other hand, is tempted to believe there are two or three or ten versions of Christianity. When there's only one. Hebrews opens in the first chapter, in the first paragraph, with a three-verse summary of the entire message of the book. Listen to it carefully. Hebrews 1.1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom God also made the universe. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of the nature of God. He upholds, Jesus does, all things, including you right now, by the word of his power. When that Jesus, The potentate of time, the king of glory, that Jesus, made purification for your sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Does that sound similar to what we've just seen in Hebrews 12? When he made purification of sins, chapter 1. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, chapter 12. When he endured the cross for the joy set before him, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do those two things sound similar? You see, in chapter 1, he unleashes the idea. And for the following 11 chapters, he defends the idea so that in chapter 12, he can put it back in our face and say, do you think there are any other options? Do you see the parallel? Everything in between chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, In our text today, six years later, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, everything between that is an apologetic. It's an argument. It's a defense from the lawyer for a case. And he's telling you time and again that the unrivaled superiority of the person, Jesus, which, by the way, is his earthly name, is unquestionably the epicenter of the true Christian life. If you can live the Christian life without Christ in the center, then friend, you're not living the Christian life. The author shows them in those intervening 11 chapters that Jesus, though greater than angels, became like us in human form in order to be a propitiation for our sins, chapters 1 and 2. An atoning sacrifice for rebels. He then argues in chapters 3 and 4 that we ought not turn back from pursuing the restful 
promised land, the true promised land of Christ himself because Jesus has won access for us into the throne room of God which we should plunge into boldly and with confidence. Chapters 5 through 10, the main argument, he shows that Jesus is the great high priest whose bloody self-sacrifice, no other priest had done that, and it wouldn't have helped if they would have, the bloody self-sacrifice of our high priest, the Lord Jesus, who is the sovereign of the universe, has won not only access for us into God's throne room, chapters 3 and 4, but he also invites us to live in the presence of the one true God for all eternity, chapters 5 through 10. Then the author proceeds to pull from the Old Covenant, showing multiplied Old Testament examples in chapter 11, of saints for whom Christ himself was enough in the most difficult of times. So if you have an exception to the rule that would make your situation more perplexing than what Hebrews chapter 11 saints faced, or what New Testament recipients of the book of Hebrews faced, then you get a pass on Jesus being the center of your life. But if your circumstances are less difficult, then what you find in Hebrews 11 and see in the cultural context of first century Christianity that received this letter, you get no pass, no option on whether or not Jesus Christ must, without debate, be the epicenter of the Christian life. You simply don't get to make the rules. He's God. He saves all by himself, all for himself. He goes on to tell him after chapter 12, when he puts Christ right in the center, gives his thesis statement that he's been arguing toward for those 11 chapters. Right after the statement, he goes on to tell them that God's discipline in their lives is proof that he loves them, not hates them. And that he wants us to share in Christ's own holiness, which is the measure of his love. He tells them in chapter 13 that our homes, our marriages, our money, and our worship are therefore to be aimed explicitly at the glory of Jesus Christ. That's the Christian life. That's what looking unto Jesus means. So in this six-part sermon series, beginning today, five more parts, Lord willing, on chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I'm going to give you now the sentence that would be the summary of the entire series. Six parts, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. If I could distill it down into a phrase, it would sound like this. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, calls us to gladly rid our life of anything and everything that hinders us from a Jesus-focused, gospel-purchased, lifestyle. One more time. We're to gladly rid our life of anything and everything that hinders us from a Jesus-focused, gospel-purchased lifestyle. I could crystallize it down even more briefly than that and say, this text is calling us friends, loved ones, dear people, to gladly pursue your greatest gladness. This text is simply saying, be truly happy. Stop trading on true gladness with lesser pleasures that can't provide it. It's not calling you away from satisfaction. It's actually calling you toward true satisfaction. But it's saying, if you can be satisfied, Christian, in a way that did not require Jesus Christ to die on the cross, there's something messed up with your definition of satisfaction. If you can live the Christian life without the gospel work of Jesus, gospel purchased Jesus focus, then it's not real Christianity. So our aim in these six parts today, try to get our arms around just what does the passage say and to look at one little phrase in it. And then God willing for the next five weeks we'll continue with the prayer. I got a Confession to make. I'm not so concerned only with what the passage says. I think most of you can quote it from memory. 
I'm concerned especially with a prayer that the Holy Spirit will move our heart into happy agreement with God's indisputable call on our life. So what's in the passage? Two things. If you look at verses 1 and 2, there's two things in the two verses. Verse 1, run the race. Verse 2, look to Jesus. Now, run the race has three incentives or instructions. If you just look at verse 1, you can see these I trust. Why run, how to prepare, and how to keep the pace. Why should you run? Verse 1, you're surrounded by a whole bunch of other witnesses. Last night when Tracy and I ran this race, I told you we were were with 2,000 of our closest friends. It's amazing how a little bit of human pride keeps you from walking when there's 2,000 other people running beside you, especially kids this little. Run the race. Not in a prideful, competitive sense, but in a good, godly sense. If you will link your life with God's people who are pursuing Jesus with all their might, I promise you, you will pursue Jesus more. Run the race. Because there's a whole bunch of other people running. You're not out training for the event. You're at the event. And there's a lot of other people. Stop running alone. Why should you run? There's a lot of witnesses. Verse 1, how should you prepare? Twofold, you should lay aside every encumbrance and every sin. Notice it's not only the sinful, God-belittling, non-God-glorifying things that you should lay aside. It's also anything that's going to slow you down. Like me trying to carry six kids running backwards last night. That would have been foolish. It's also foolish to try to run the Christian race with amoral, not necessarily sinful impediments. Run the race. Why? Because there's a lot of witnesses. How? Laying aside all weight and all sin. And how are you going to keep the pace? Verse 1, with endurance. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. It looks pretty ordinary. When the vehicles are passing by on the road, they don't think you're moving very fast. The, the thing they don't realize, though, is how far you're going. You're not sprinting. Find the pace to finish the race. The Bible calls that patience, verse 1, or endurance. So part one is run the race. That's what's in the passage. But part two, which is really the foundation of it all, the goal of it all, is looking to Jesus. And there's four descriptions in verse two about this Jesus. We get who he is, what he's done, why and how he's done it, and where he is. Look to Jesus. Who is he? Verse 2, he's the author and perfecter of faith. What has he done? Verse 2, he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Why and how did he do it? He did it why for the joy set before him. He did it how despising the shame. Where is he now? He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what's in the passage. Run the race. Look to Jesus. God willing, in our next five parts of the series, we're going to zero in on various parts of those themes with the prayer that God will bring our lives, our lives, into accord with his demand for what a real Christian is. But for today... In our opening look at this text, we want to zero in on that phrase in verse 2. Your Bible may say, fixing your eyes on Jesus. Your translation may say, looking unto Jesus. The New American Standard, which I'm using, says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Friends, I don't know what that does on the inside of you. But my prayer has been that the Spirit would pour gasoline on the fire of that phrase right here, right now. This is the epicenter of the Bible. It's not only the thesis statement of the book of Hebrews, and it is. It is the epicenter, not only of the Bible, not only of Hebrews. Friends, this is the epicenter of heaven. If this doesn't entice you, heaven would not be a place you would want to belong. It's not only the epicenter of the Bible, of the Christian life, of heaven, all creation, all the stars flung out in the galaxies that our best telescopes 
have never seen. Everything in all creation exists for the display of God's glory, which is most clearly seen in the face of his glorified Son. One day, the creation that is subjected to futility because of my sin and yours, and our first parent, Adam, one day, all creation will break free from its shackledness to sin and somehow, in a way I don't understand, exalt, Romans chapter 8, in the glory of God in Christ. This is the epicenter of everything. If that sounds like an overstatement, I'm going to try to do what the author of Hebrews did from chapter 1 to chapter 12 and make my defense. Apart from Christ, there is no Christianity. He is the sum total of all saving knowledge. To know Jesus is eternal life. To believe on him as your sinless substitute, as we just sang, is to have the knowledge of your sins forgiven. To embrace him as your life is to be born again. To gaze on Christ in all of his manifold perfections is sanctification. Without which, no one will see the Lord. To look unto Jesus is the bedrock expression of everything that Christianity means. So I'm going to ask you again. Is it possible that you might be trying to live the Christian life without Christ at the epicenter of everything? Preachers and parents may have been able to coerce you into praying a prayer. Only the Holy Spirit can make you fall in love with Jesus Christ. Looking unto Jesus... Beholding his wonder and his beauty and his magnificence and his transcendent, otherworldly, inexplicably glorious glory does not make you a Christian. It reveals that you are one. If you're not interested in Jesus, you are not interested in Christianity. Even if somebody guilted you into a prayer when you were seven. Has the Holy Spirit taken up residence in your soul whose vocation, which he will not fail to fulfill, is to much make of Jesus forever? Jesus makes Christians. If you want to know how to become one, listen carefully. By the death of Jesus in your place, under the infinite punishment of God, being judged for your sin, which he did not commit. And by his resurrection from the dead, for your salvation, Jesus bought you. He paid for you. He didn't hope one day that he would claim you. He purchased you. Believing upon him, according to what I've just said he did for you, and turning from your self-centered absorption in sin. And embracing Christ Jesus as Lord is to become a Christian. There's no other way to become a Christian. And there's no other Christianity. There may be a lot of things that pass as Christian. And use the same vocabulary that I'm using. But they're no more Christian than Islam is Christian. Looking to Jesus is both how to be saved, and looking to Jesus is also evidence that you are being saved. He is the way in, and he is the way up. Being saved. Let's put Jesus' own testimony to this fact. If you want to be saved, I'm saying looking to Jesus, fixing your eyes on Jesus, that's our phrase for today, is the answer to how to be saved. This is the way Jesus said it. John chapter 3, he said, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so he's hearkening back to the book of Numbers when the fiery serpents, based on God's judgment, bit the disobedient people and they were perishing from terminal illness. 
God told Moses in that episode in Numbers to craft a bronze serpent, hold it high. Everyone who looked at it would be cured and live. You can go read that for yourself in the book of Numbers. Jesus, interpreting that episode, said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, he didn't say look, looking unto Jesus. He said believe. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so everyone who believed, so what is believing? It's not a work. It's a trust. That what God said is enough is enough. And God said the death of Jesus is enough. Jesus said everyone who believes on him will have eternal life. John 3, 14. So looking to Jesus is the way to be saved. If you don't want to be saved that way, I still love you, but you don't want to be saved because there is not another way. Not only is looking to Jesus the way to be saved, looking to Jesus is the way to be sanctified, or we could say grow in the evidence that you have truly been saved. When somebody asks you if you're a Christian, my guess is you're not the kind of people who say, well, as a matter of fact, I am. Because when I was 10, no, 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 you're not still living that lie, right? How do you know I'm a Christian? Well, God only knows my heart. My guess is if somebody asks you, is Pastor Jordan a Christian, you're probably not going to say, when he was 19, freshman in college, reading the New Testament, you're going to say, I think he loves Jesus, best I can tell. God knows the heart, gives a credible profession of faith. The way you know you're a Christian is, Right here, right now, by the doing of the Holy Spirit. You love Jesus Christ more than you love yourself. That's how you know you're a Christian. Do you love Jesus more than you love you? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. I can get you to pray a prayer. I can follow the manipulative tactics to get everybody right here on the altar. We can use guilt, psychological manipulation. We can do all that. Only the Holy Spirit can make you love Jesus. And I'm saying that looking to him is not only the way to be saved, it's also the way to be sanctified. That's what our text is about. Second Chronicles is a beautiful picture of that. Queen of Sheba comes to see Solomon. She herself is a queen, well endowed. You may know the stories. To summarize it succinctly, she said when she gets to Solomon, I've heard so much about you, but it was not until I saw you with my own eyes that I realized the half had not been told me. You surpass in beauty, splendor, excellence, riches, possessions, all that I heard. That's why the Christian loves to go to Christ. Jesus even picked up that story in Matthew and said, something greater than Solomon is here. Meaning, if she would go all that way with all her endowments to look at him, and Second Chronicles says she was speechless. One translation says she was breathless when she saw Solomon. Jesus, using that account, said, why don't you just get all your stuff, all your endowments, all your riches, everything you think is valuable, and come take a look at me, and don't ever leave, because I'm better than anything, anywhere, anytime. Looking to Jesus is the way to be sanctified. Christ saves all by himself. And he saves all for himself. So I maintain, if you do not want Jesus, you do not want salvation. The Christian's eyes never can move away from Christ. Ever. For any reason. No matter what you undergo. I'm tempted to quote, all 694 pages of Isaac Ambrose's book titled Looking Unto Jesus. I'll give you four lines from page 18. As Christ is more excellent than all the world, so the sight of him transcends all other sights. Seeing Jesus is the epitome of the Christian's happiness, the quintessence of all evangelical gospel duties, looking unto Jesus. Could you say that? The greatest delight in all my life is when the Holy Spirit gives me an accurate biblical sighting of the Savior. 
The author of Hebrews has told us, chapter 1, that Jesus radiates the glory of God. He perfectly, exactly represents the nature of God. Do you not want to behold him? To rob a phrase from modern culture, are you not entertained? Don't you want to see him continually and forever? A.W. Pink, in his 1,307-page commentary on the book of Hebrews, said about verse 2. I told you how many pages are in it because of what he's about to say. Parentheses. It's the most important statement in the whole book. Alas, how very little real Christianity there is in the world today. Christianity consists, what is it? What is Christianity? Christianity consists in being conformed unto the image of God's Son. That's it? That's it? But I don't want to be like Jesus. At least you know you're not yet a Christian. Christianity consists in being conformed unto the image of God's Son. Pink continues, looking unto Jesus constantly, trustfully, submissively, lovingly, the heart occupied with him, the mind stayed on him, that is the whole secret of practical Christianity. And then here it comes, genuine Christianity, based on God's word, is a life lived. In communion with Christ. That's it. There's not two Christianities and there's not ten. That's it. Fixing your eyes on Jesus. I'm going to do something strange and uh, ask that the fellas edit edit this out for the recording if they think that that is uh, useful. It's so hot up here. Is it that hot out there? Okay. Who has Jeff? or Travis's phone number, and can solve the thermostat issue. Even more better. All right? So we're going to press on, and I really want you to listen because uh, not to over-sensationalize, I believe I have a word from the Lord for you today. So welcome to all my visits to India. Here we go. All right, time in. The question has never been, what do you know about Jesus? Now, you do have to know basic things about Christ in order to be eligible to be saved. Without a knowledge of the true gospel, you can't be saved. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word concerning Christ. But the question really isn't, what do you know about Jesus? The question is always going to be, do you love him? Do you love him? I'm not trying to overly subjectify the Christian life. I'm not talking about feelings. You will know you love him, not by how you feel, but by the gravitational pull in your soul. If you love him, it will be manifest in you being magnetized to Jesus. You will love looking unto Jesus if you belong to him. Isn't this what the Apostle Paul exclaimed? From prison, for to me to live is Christ. When everything's going well, nope, all the time. To die is gain. The author of Hebrews urged us in chapter 3, therefore consider Jesus. What? No, really, like that's it. He's the apostle, the one sent from God. To show us who God is. He's the high priest. The one who brings us back to God. In a way that doesn't cause us to be incinerated. For offending him with our sin. He's the only one who can do that. So chapter 3 verse 1. Consider him. Look unto him. Meditate long on him. Never take your eye away from him. This is the sum total of the Christian life. Jesus as I said a moment ago. Fixing your eyes on Jesus. That's our whole phrase. Verse 2. Jesus, I said a moment ago, is his earthly name. 
It was given to the Lord of glory when he took that quantum leap from heaven into this sin-impoverished world to rescue us from everlasting damnation. They didn't call him Jesus, the angels, and the other two persons of the Trinity before he was by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. In fact, Matthew says, the angel to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, that's where it came, because he will save his people from their sins. So we're talking about fixing your eyes on the incarnate Son of God. You should look at his everlasting glory, because you'll never understand the incarnation or appreciate it, what Christ did for us, until you know that he never began, and that he wasn't bored, and that's not why he came to get us. He came to get us because he's God, and for some reason known largely only to himself, he thought it would be wonderful to rescue us instead of damn us. But looking unto Jesus is really a command to look unto the incarnate one. The one who still, in his glorified state, bears the nail prints in his hands and feet. Looking unto Jesus, the earthly person and gospel work, of the Savior. If you will gaze upon, if you will look upon the earthly life of Jesus of Nazareth, you will see two eminent features. By the way, start reading the Gospel of Matthew now. Lord willing, we're set to begin studying it in our small groups in the fall. If you will look upon Jesus of Nazareth, you will see two eminent features. First, you will see a life lived in complete dependence upon God. Second, you will see a life lived in constant communion with God. Look at that Jesus. If you gaze upon him, you will be conformed into his image, which according to Romans 8, is God's will for your life. And if you won't look at him, you won't be like him because you become like what you behold. And we're called here to fix our eyes on him. I said there's two features you would see about him if you look at Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man. First, I said you would see his utter, complete dependence upon God. The author of Hebrews has already shown us, Hebrews chapter 10, as one example, that when Jesus came from heaven to earth, he came, in the words of Psalm 40, coming through his lips, to do God's will. Not his own prerogative, total dependence on another. By the way, we're talking about the sovereign of the universe submitting himself to the will of another. Hebrews 1 says he upholds everything by the word of his power. But we see him in his incarnation, humbly dependent, submitting himself to the will of his father, particularly to offer his body as a sacrifice for sinners. Philippians 2 expands on the idea of Christ's obedient dependence, and it says... He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Total, unflinching, absolute allegiance to God. Total dependence. But also said you would see constant communion. Not only did he depend on God the Father, in every moment waking and sleeping, he lived the life that you have always wanted to live. The reason you want people to like you, the reason we like this when people say our name, the reason we want more of this, the reason we're looking for prestige and power and influence, oftentimes is related to our gross deficiency in being satisfied. The life you have always wanted and the acts laid at the root of all the sinful expressions of what I just said, and it's not always sinful to pursue those things, but to lay the axe at the sinful expression of that, live in communion with God. If you and I will believe, if God is for us, who could be against us? Then nobody can touch you. Whether you're in prison, whether you're in the palace. Jesus lived in constant communion with God, waking and sleeping. He said so in John 8. The Father has never left me alone. When everybody else betrayed him, he knew that the Father was with him always. Constant dependence, constant communion. And this text says, fix your eyes on him. I'm not oblivious to the fact that it gives us four ways to look at him. And I told you that in the coming weeks we'll unpack those particulars. Pray that the Spirit will help us. 
But in conclusion, I just want to apply. If we look at Jesus, if we're commanded to fix our eyes on Jesus, what's the application? I hope you're ready because it's so profound. Look to Jesus. Do you want to look to Jesus? Let me even use Tozer's words. Do you want to want to look at Jesus? If so, take heart because you're probably regenerate. If you desire to look at Christ, to behold his glory, to see his person and his gospel work, Jesus Christ and him crucified, person and work, if that's what you want, the Spirit has made you want that. If that's not what you want, in the most loving way, none, no obstacle but the gospel way, if you don't want to look at Jesus, I'm begging you to tremble. I'm begging you to get on your face and ask God what's wrong with you. Why don't you see the world right side up? Why do you think that God was made for you and you not for him? Why do you think that he does your bidding and you not do his? Why do you think Christ is not significant? Why do you think he's not worthy of orbiting your whole existence around? If you don't want to look at him, the application is, pray that you'll want to look at him. When I say the application is look to Jesus, I get it. We've been using that phrase so long. And sometimes words lose meaning and phrases lose meaning when they get used carelessly. We're probably guilty of that after six years of saying, look to Jesus as the application to every sermon in Hebrews for six years. So you might be thinking, I do want to look to him. I just want to know how. It's to those of you that I now want to speak. The question is not really how, as much as it's how often and for what duration. The answer to that has to be settled before you get to the house because you can't test drive Jesus. He's not interested in you taking a nibble to see if you like him. In fact, he's not even going to show himself to you if you're trying to try him to see if he works. You first must plunge yourself off the cliff into his arms of mercy and pray he catches you. If he does, you'll want to look to him. And then the question will be how long, and the answer will be obvious, forever. This is what heaven's going to be, by the way. John 17, the book of Revelation. We're going to be interested in Christ forever. If you're not interested in him for a 50 or 70 or 90 year run on this side of eternity, you would have to be some kind of fool to think you're all of a sudden going to be interested in him for endless eternity. This is the epicenter of the Christian life in heaven. So if you want to look to him, let me try to help. Negative and positive. The word in Hebrews 12.2, fixing or looking, let me bore you with a Greek word, aphoronte. To put the ah sound at the beginning of a Greek word is exactly like putting you in, un, in front of an English word, unholy, unclean, uncool, which is the greatest fear that most Americans have. It's to negate a word. It means not that, not holy, not clean. That's the word in Hebrews 12, 2 for looking. Ah, ferante. It has the alpha privative, which negates it. So it's not only looking to him. It's looking off of everything else. Isaac Ambrose, again, helps us more than I could put it into better words myself, so enjoy. First, we must look off all, over, all other things. We must take our mind from everything which might divert us in our Christian race from looking unto Jesus. Offerantes speaks to us thus, hand off, eyes off of anything that stands in the way of Jesus Christ. Oh, when a soul comes to know what an eternal God is, what an eternal Jesus is, what an eternal crown is, when a soul knows the great design of Christ to save poor sinners, to communicate himself 
eternally to such poor creatures, what is anything in comparison with looking unto Jesus? If you want to look at Jesus, sometimes I think when we ask the question, what does that mean? Not always, but sometimes I think we're really betraying. I'm so full of the chaff of the world, I'm not hungry for him. If you want to look unto Jesus, I think we might start asking less of the how question when we stop glutting ourselves on garbage. Then we will have an appetite for what truly satisfies. Look off, look on. Charles Simeon similarly pastors us. The apostle tells us, quote, not merely to look unto Jesus, but in so doing to look off from everything else. Look off of everything else and look on to Christ. Then your difficulties will appear to you as nothing. Doesn't that sound like Paul? These momentary light afflictions. What, you mean beatings and whippings and imprisonment and getting lowered in a basket through a wall and stoned outside of a city? These momentary light afflictions. Just nothing. Because it's producing for me an eternal weight of glory. All your difficulties. You want to know the secret to not living a complaining life? Get your little soul satisfied in the bottomless, brimless ocean of the Lord of glory. Look off of everything else, even your own difficulties. And when you see them in light of Christ, you'll think that they're small. And you'll proceed cheerfully. I'm quoting Simeon with an assured expectation of the prize. Isn't that why the Apostle Paul said, to the church at Corinth. I only have one message. If you've heard one sermon. You've heard them all. And you need to hear it again and again and again. I only determined to know Christ. And him crucified. That's it. I want to know how spiritual gifts relate to Christ's lordship. I want to know how church discipline relates to Christ's lordship. I want to know how membership relates to Christ's lordship. I want to know how love relates to his lordship. But it's Jesus. Period. We don't have another message. That's why Richard Sibbs would say, the special office of the ministry of Christ, what he does, not what we do. The special office of the ministry of Christ is to lay open Christ. To hold up the tapestry, to unfold the hidden mysteries of Christ. That's why he told the disciples in John 14, I tell you what, if you love me and you keep all my commandments, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to show myself to you. John 14, 21. And not one disciple looked at the Lord Jesus and said, that's all you got? He's everything to the Christian. I'm asking you in every way I know how. Do you want Jesus? What think ye of Christ? When God commissions someone to serve his people, which by the way is every Christian. When God commissions someone to serve his people, he tells us exactly what the job description is. And I quote, proclaim Christ. Why? So that you may present everyone complete in Christ. Jesus is the means and Jesus is the end. Paul said that his aim in gospel ministry is singular. To help others, quote, know the Son of God. Ephesians 4.13. Why? So that God's people would be mature. How will you know when they're mature? They will have the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. How will they get there? They will know the Son of God. So what are you going to try to do? Help them know the Son of God. This is why Ignatius of Antioch, who lived in the first century and was discipled by one of Jesus' disciples, said, apart from Christ, let nothing dazzle you. Friends, we're dancing under the central spotlight of heaven right now. This is the ballroom that God made you for. He made you to enjoy Him by getting to him through his son, who is to us the image of the invisible God. This is, put simply, Christianity. Isn't this what Paul told the Galatians? I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, but it's not me anymore. It's Christ in me. So, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The focus of true faith is the Son of God. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. 
Theodore Menad in a little booklet that we give to every Grace Church member for this reason said only three words, looking unto Jesus. But in those three words is the whole secret of life. Do you want real, practical, soul-delighting, God-glorifying application from Hebrews 12, 1 and 2? Then come to the edge of your seat. I commend to you the exhortation that our brother A.W. Pink gave from verse 2. You ready for it? Here's practical, nitty-gritty, put-your-hand-to-the-plow application. Seek the help of the Holy Spirit that the eye of your faith be steadfastly fixed on Christ. Ask God to help you with this. If you find your flame flickering and your wax, your wick smoldering, then ask the Spirit to help you. He loves to glorify Jesus. Can't do this in your own power anyway. Didn't Jesus tell us that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus, John 16, 14? If you'll stay with me for a few minutes, I promise it'll be worth your while. A.W. Pink went on to add, the person of the Savior is to be the mark on which the eyes of those who are pressing forward for the prize of the high calling of God are to be fixed. The person of the Savior, fixed. Be constantly looking to Him, trustfully, submissively, hopefully, expectantly. He is the fountain of all grace, John 1.16. Our every need is supplied, yes, by God, but according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.19. So dear Christian, I'm not talking to everybody in the room, I'm talking to the Christian. If the Spirit of God is living inside of you, He causes you to want to know Christ. How could we not thirst to behold Him more clearly whose glory outshines the sun that you can't look at for two seconds without looking away? How could we not thirst to behold Him more clearly who is the one by His glory who will brighten all of heaven for all of eternity? Saints, to look unto Jesus is to see the image of the invisible God. The book of Revelation, as I mentioned a moment ago, is one long protracted look at the coming eternity where the saints in glory, not the damned in hell, but the saints in glory will ever behold the radiance of Christ's magnificence and bask in the brightness of the glory of our Redeemer. That's why you get those songs. Worthy art thou, holy, 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 to the Lamb who was slain. Is this sermon in balance? Is it too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good? Mr. Ambrose has a response. He knew, Ambrose did, that heaven would be an eternity-drenched existence in, John Piper says, absorbed into. That's why I'm pausing, because I'm not, I want to ask him what that means. But something like that. An eternity-drenched existence inside the glory of the triune God and Ambrose said, therefore, we know that a holy soul, true Christian, cannot tire itself in the contemplation of Jesus. If all heaven is going to be that, there's no way you can get tired of that. The same reason Andrew Murray said, the whole secret of the Christian life consists in a personal relationship to Jesus, therefore... Look to Jesus and his love until your heart burns with that same love. Conclusion. I'm asking you laden with God's love. Do you have a genuine interest in Christ? Do you want him? Do you love him? Do you want to behold him? Do you find him altogether lovely. Is Jesus everything to you? Examine your soul with the help again of Pastor Ambrose. Quote, in the knowledge of Christ, 
There is an excellency above all other knowledge in the world. There's nothing more pleasing or comfortable. There's nothing more animating or enlivening. There's nothing more ravishing and soul contenting. Only Christ is the sun and center of all divine revealed truth. We can preach nothing else as the object of your faith. The necessary element of your soul's salvation. Which doth not some way or other meet in Christ. Only Christ is the whole of man's happiness. He is the sun to enlighten him. He is the physician to heal him. He is the wall of fire to defend him. He is the friend to comfort him. He is the pearl to enrich him. He is the ark to support him. He is the rock to sustain him under the heaviest of pressures. Only Christ is that ladder between earth and heaven, the mediator between God and man. Only Christ is that mystery which angels in heaven desire to pry into, to look into. Christ is more excellent than all the world. So the sight of Christ transcends all other sights. He is the epitome of a Christian's happiness. Yeah, 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 yeah. For you. No, 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 no. For all God's people. What, is, what our passage is saying is that this Jesus who died the wretched death of the cross, verse 2, for our redemption, who is now risen and seated at the right hand of the throne of God so that he would represent you with all his righteousness in the presence of God who you offended by your sin. He's there in bodily form, glorified, so that you can know God. He's the object of all saving faith. 20-year-old Charles Spurgeon became the pastor of a big church, Metropolitan Tabernacle, London. And when he was 20 years old, this is his first statement to that church. I would propose that the subject of ministry in this house, as long as this platform shall stand, and as long as this house shall be frequented by worshipers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. I am never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist. I do not hesitate to take the name of Baptist. But if I am asked what my creed is, I reply, it is Jesus Christ. My venerated predecessor, Dr. Gill, this is Spurgeon, has left us a body of divinity. That means a whole bunch of books with a good bit of theology. He's left us a body of divinity, admirable and excellent in its way. But the body of divinity to which I would pin and bind myself forever, God helping me, is not the system of Dr. Gill or any other human treatise, but Christ Jesus, who is the sum and substance of the gospel who is in himself all theology. He is the incarnation of every precious truth, the all-glorious personal embodiment of the way, the truth, and the life. If you have two minutes left in your gas tank on the authority of the inspired word of God, it'll be worth it. Therefore, since we are surrounded with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every encumbrance and every sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray together. Father, as we prayed at the beginning, we so pray now that you would cause us to be as fascinated with your glory beaming from the face of our Redeemer, your Son, as you are. 
We don't only want to know him a little more. We want to know him fully. We pray this with great joy because you've promised us an eternity to search him out. If we would but turn from our sin and put our hope in him. We look forward to the day when there will be no more restraint. No more encumbrance, no more sin. Only ever looking unto Jesus. Thank you that the cross of that Jesus has made the way. We pray this in his name. Amen.